chromosome. Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. It's time now for the People's War Radio Show, where we do talk about the main virus. And that is colonialism. Here on the People's War Radio Show, we talk with healthcare workers, activists, revolutionaries, authors, teachers, and regular people from the African community. We aim to bring you an African internationalist analysis on all things important to winning our freedom from colonialism. The root of all our problems. We need the world to wake up for everybody to see what's going on here and understand what colonialism is, understand what residential schools are, understand what the 60 scoop is, understanding what the so you know welfare system is doing to our people. It just seems like Canada has uh, the whole world you know duped that this is such a great country and there's no racism here. You know, this is what we need to do is everybody's got to stand up and let the world know what's really going on here. Uhuru, welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. On May 27, 2021, a mass grave with the remains of 215 children was found at Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia, Canada. On June 25th, Chief of the Kalos Nation reported that on June 2nd, they had embarked on a mission to search for unmarked graves and found a mass grave of 751 remains in the southeast corner of the Saskatchewan province at the cemetery for the former Marival Indian Residential School. These discoveries have rocked Canada and soured this year's commemoration of Canada Day, celebrated as Canada's birthday on July 1st. The Indian Residential Schools was a network of boarding schools created by the colonial government of Canada for the indigenous children and usually operated by Christian church organizations. Similar to the Carlisle Indian School in the United States, residential schools operated in Canada from 1883 to 1996. In response to the discovery of these mass residential school graves, a series of fires have been set ablaze at churches across Canada. On June 21st, Sacred Heart Church on the Penticton Indian Reservation in British Columbia was burned to the ground. On the same day, a few hours later, St. Gregory Catholic Church, located on the Osoyoos Indian Reservation in British Columbia, was also set on fire. On June 26th, Our Lady of Lords, Chopaka Catholic Church, the St. Anne's Catholic Church, 
and the St. Paul Anglican Church were all set on fire. On June 28th, the Siksika First Nation Catholic Church was set ablaze. On June 30th, St. John Baptiste Parish Church in Morinville, Alberta was burned to the ground. On July 1st, St. Paul was set on fire again. This time, it was completely burned down. As well, the St. Patrick Coke Cathedral Church in Yellowknife Northwest Territories was set ablaze. The next day, the St. Columba Angelic Church in British Columbia was also set on fire. At the same time, we see a rash of murdered and missing Indigenous women and a continued struggle of Native people in Canada against the foster care system and the prison system. To discuss this with us today on the People's War Radio Show, we have Darren Lathlin Torpy and Zach Williams. Darren Lathlin Torp is a member of the Cree Nation and lives in Calgary, Alberta. Darren has worked in the oil industry in Canada and the United States. Darren's family has direct experience with the Indian residential schools, and he and his family have spoken out against them. Darren is an advocate for the return of Indigenous people to their original culture. Dr. Zach Williams is originally from Seattle, Washington. Dr. Williams received his PhD in Ethnic Studies from the University of California, San Diego in 2019, and before that completed a Bachelor of Arts in Comparative Ethnic Studies at Washington State University in 2011. Dr. Williams' dissertation titled, Didn't It Rain?, explores the ways the material conditions of anti-Black racism, segregation, and exclusion affect the development of the Pacific Northwest from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th centuries. Uh, Welcome to the show, Darren and uh, Zach. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, Darren, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to have you on the show, as you know. Uh, I've got family up there in Calgary as well. Uh, next time I come up there, you know, once they reopen these colonial borders, you know, we're going to have to link up. So as a child, uh, you were forcibly taken from your family and placed into a white foster care home. Can you tell us about that experience? Uh, well, good morning. Hi, everybody. Uh, basically, my mom was raised in a residential school, so she would have been taken at a young age, right? My mom today is 72 years old. In uh, 1975, I was taken from my mom's home and placed into a foster home where I became a ward of the government in 1984, which means that basically the government will take care of me till I'm 18. And that's, you know, here I am. What's the links that you uh, have found between the residential schools, prisons, and the foster care system in Canada? And uh, how were these residential schools similar to other forms of oppression that Native people experience in Canada and uh, the United States? Well, it's still going on to this day. You know, now we have foster care, and basically it's just an extension from residential schools to 60 school. Right. So now I got to worry about my grandkids. Right. Getting and taken into the system and basically to be exploited and to, to lose their identity. Something that I know also deeply, deeply has impacted the Native community in Alberta and all throughout Canada and all throughout North America has been COVID-19. Can you say a little bit about the COVID-19 struggles of the Native community? in uh, Alberta and throughout uh, Canada? 
Well, it's just, I, I think basically it's the same as anything else, you know, whether it's, uh, it doesn't matter what minority you are here in Canada, you're always going to be at the back of the line. So, you know, I, I, I don't really want to be ignorant and say what I want to say, but that's enough said right there, right? The numbers don't lie. You know, all the stats that the government has and, you know, it's always on our past. Those numbers don't lie. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to ask, how do you see the European religion serving as a way to colonize Native people in Canada? And how have Native people resisted that colonization? Well, like you said, all I could do is give examples from what I've experienced. And uh, being raised with white people, like I said, that's what the foster system here is. That's what the 60 scoop is, right? I was raised with it. Uh, my, my foster mother was a German. My foster father was a Norwegian. So when I come out of the foster home at 18, I was basically a 100% Norwegian because I was brought up with that culture. How is that going to help our fight and struggle when I don't even have an identity and know who I am? How am I supposed to help my grandkids or even have this conversation with you when I don't have an identity? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I imagine it was the same thing for um, many Indigenous children. Um, during that time, you mentioned something called the 60 swoop. Yes. And yeah, can you explain that a little bit? Basically, the 60 scoop is because obviously you're going to have these parents that went to these residential schools who were robbed of their identity, their dignity. You know, they were, they were most of them are molested, abused. You know what I mean? How, how, what kind of a parent do you think is that going to be? That was my mom. So then my mom had five kids. Where do you think they all went? All into the system. So basically the government broke my mom with no identity and then she has these kids and the government walks in there and at, you know, the same thing as residential schools where they went in and forcibly removed the kids at five years old to go to school. But then when the 60 scoop came, those mothers were not capable of raising their own kids. So they lost the kids to this foster system, which is called 60 scoop, right? So then the 60 scoop is where I was raised. And that goes all the way up till, you know, 1988 when I when I finally left the foster home. So then here I am as a as a 60 scoop survivor. What kind of a dad do you think I was? My son's 28 years old and he hates me because he doesn't know who I am and I don't even know who I am myself. Not until I, you know, I joined the creator when in my in my mid 40s, where I actually have an identity now. You know, so now I've got to reconcile with my son and get him to forgive me. And, and away we go. It's just a big process. And that's just to survive as a family. How are we supposed to cope within a culture within Canada? So then you're looking at myself as a survivor. I was lucky my, my son was not taken into foster care. Because now what we're finding is most of these kids. So like I said, I'm second generation, right, from, from residential school. There, obviously, there's probably two or three more generations there that are just like I am now, that how are they supposed to give their kids guidance and leadership when they don't have any of that themselves? Right. So if I understand this correctly, if I could understand this, um, basically, uh, you know, through these residential schools that were ran by these churches, um, the Native culture was completely taken away. And... So what? So basically, what you guys are left with 
is everything that they taught you, which, you know, when we understand colonialism, it's meant to destroy us. So it, it created um, a lot of division within the native community, especially between the families. Between the families and society. I right. mean, you look at my neighbors, you know, it doesn't matter what color my neighbors are. Canada is supposed to be a multicultural country, right? Like U.S. is a melting pot, correct? That's what they say. We're Canada. You have all these different cultures. So then what was Canada funded on? You know, in the 1800s every, or 1900s, everybody came to Canada to exploit, correct? And the only way for them really to exploit Canada is to get rid of the natives. So then we bring in six, six, the uh, residential school was to kill the Indian in the man, correct? And that's what residential school is. So then you look at 60 scoop is basically the white system finishing the job what they started with the residential schools. So then what does that leave my grandkids with? Nobody knows who they are. And like I said, that my neighbors look down on me because with residential school, the first thing I did in there was erase your identity, cut your hair. You weren't allowed to speak your language. You had to change your clothes, right? How confusing is that? And then to be offended by that and ashamed at who you are, I still am to this day. I'm 51 years old. That's what they did to us. When I have the same conversation with fellow Canadians, whether they're Muslim, Catholic, atheist, when I have the same conversation with them like I am with you, man, they'll tell me that the natives did it to themselves. You know how upsetting that makes me? Right? To hear that? How did we do this to ourselves? And this is from my neighbors. The problem now is within, right? It's like a it's like a bad apple, right? You got a cancer that's within Canada. And the only way that's gonna change is for my culture to get our identity back. And that's the only way it's gonna change. How many generations is that gonna take? Twice as many as it did to ruin us? I don't know. You mentioned your return to indigenous religious and cultural practices. Can you explain some of those practices? So basically spending your whole life, you know, not having an identity as far as, you know, as religious, religious to follow, right? Because if you don't know who you are, you're just walking around, you know, you don't have any rules or what do you follow? Like, I always knew what the Ten Commandments were, right? That's one thing I was raised with. As long as you know what the Ten Commandments were, you should be able to make it in this world. And that's the way I was raised. But it wasn't until I was in my mid-40s that I, I, I met a Native woman. And I started following her culture as far as learning our spirituality, uh, the medicine wheel, you know, reconnecting with nature. You know, there's so much that I didn't, I, I don't know, and I'm still learning. And, and if you would have met me 10 years ago, I'm like night and day. I'm a different man than I was. You know, obviously I worked rigs, like drilling rigs, all over North America, right? What kind of a man do you have to be the, to be the boss on, on drilling rigs for 15 years? But that's the way I was trained. So the way I look at it is when I'm brought up by thinking white, I chase the dollar. When I brought up by chasing my culture now, I'm not, I'm not ruled by dollar, right? 
And that's maybe what the difference is that I don't understand, which I'm learning. Uhuru, Uhuru, thank you so much for that, Darren. I wanted to uh, read something that um, that I learned in doing some research. The former Canadian Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, stated that the goal of residential schools was to do away with the tribal system and assimilate Indian people in all respects. And, um, you know, I, I can definitely see this process coming alive. So, Zach, your research has looked at the role of education in the colonial subjugation of indigenous peoples. How does that relate to what Darren is talking about? Uh, yeah, um, well, I think there, there's a few ways, there's, there's many ways, but um, as, as Darren was speaking, I really appreciate you uh, uh, sharing your experiences and also your perspective, uh, Darren, because you mentioned, for example, the Carlisle School, um, which was the, the first uh, uh, boarding school here in the U.S. that was not located on, um, on a Native American reservation. Um, and so Carlisle School refers to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, and of course, the school was founded by... Um, by uh, General ha uh, Harry Pratt. And I just point this out because we can see that the residential school, the boarding school education is the history of actual public education in North America. Um, and it was started under wartime efforts uh, under the guidance of the U.S. military. Now, you might ask, um, how did Harry Pratt uh, position himself to run a, a boarding school? And the reality is, is that he got his experience educating uh, uh, indigenous prisoners of war that had been captured during skirmishes, right? So this is where the history of the education comes from. Um, it's, a, it's a colonial uh, enterprise, and I can say more about that. But um, I do want to say that uh, as Darren is speaking, the, the stated goal of these schools was to remove indigenous culture, to uh, deteriorate the the strength of indigenous communities because as uh, as Matamela pointed out in the in the intro to this uh, what what is the colonial border when your people have been here for forty thousand fifty thousand years so it was incredibly uh, imperative on behalf of the colonial uh, government to weaken uh, these connections to place to land to community to family um, as Darren points out in order to be able to exploit um, resources. Um, so I think that that's one way that education, we can see education functioning um, here. Yeah, Uhuru, thanks for that, Zach, because it's not a coincidence that whether we're talking about the indigenous people of New Zealand, of Australia, of South Africa, all uh, of North America, Canada, United States, and going all the way back to the mission system, really, uh, that was set up by the Spanish going back to the late 15th, early 16th century, and in other places that this exact same method is taking place. So it's not an accident. It's not coincidence. It's not an isolated incident. And so, so Darren, what are your thoughts about these mass unmarked graves of indigenous children who were forced into the residential schools? I know you talked about them a little bit, but what's your thoughts on that? Oh, the unmarked graves. I, I guarantee you that everybody's known about these, these unmarked graves. You know, my mom talked about it. I don't talk to my mom about residential schools very much. Um, like I said, I met my mother when I was 35 years old. And uh, 
I'm actually, I talk to my mom probably, you know, a couple times, a couple times a year. You know, when I'm 51 years old, my mom's 72. That's how, how ruined our relationship is or how the colonialism has ruined our family structure, right? And as well, obviously, you know, this isn't the first time that any country's ever been colonized. You know, they obviously know what they're doing. You know, break the people first so you can take the resources. And in the end game, it's all about money, correct? Darren, the case of the residential schools is linked to the missing and murdered Indigenous women movement as well. Reports show that Indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be killed than the national average in the U.S. And there are thousands of unsolved cases of missing Indigenous women in the U.S. and Canada. Can you talk about this? You know, that's just that's just a big eye opener on what Canada is all about. And it's actually it's great. That's the only reason I'm here talking with you guys is to make the world aware and educate the world on what really happens here in Canada. You know, think about those those people that come to Canada, you know, they spend their livelihood and everything trying to come to Canada for a better life and to be treated better and all this kind of stuff. You know what? The real truth about Canada is. You're going to be exploited just like the rest of us have been, unless you are with the majority population. And I don't even think I have to say it, do I? Uh, no, you don't. You don't have to say it at all. Um, Darren, what do you say can be done to stop this? And how do people defend and protect Indigenous women? Education. What we're doing right now, you know, we got to wake people up. You know, it's, it's, colonialism is written in our laws, our legislation, our, our constitution. It's like you said, how education was brought in the States. It was brought through military time, right? It's a different time. This is 2020, you know, 2021. This is the 1800s. How come things haven't changed? You know, common sense. You're listening to the People's War Radio Show. Produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Zach Williams and Darren Laughlin Torpy. So, uh, Darren, uh, as we talked about, you used to work in the United States, and I have family in Canada, Calgary, where you're located. It's very common for people in Canada and the U.S. to think of the U.S. and Canada as distinctively different places, as you've already alluded to. However, the U.S. and Canada began as part of the same colonial process known as settler colonialism. Settler colonialism is when the colonial power physically occupies and directly governs the colonial territories. So I want to ask you this. Do you see any real difference in the colonial genocide carried out by Canada versus the U.S. against Indigenous people? I would definitely say there's a difference between the U.S. and Canada. You know, basically, uh, you know, at least with Canada here, we still have a, we still have our our reserves, and we still have, you know, our some of our lands on our reservations, and so there is still hope that we can you know, stay isolated enough, perhaps, or learn how to live with the rest of the colonial country that we can maintain our identity and get stronger as a culture as we move ahead. 
Right, right, right. That's why just to deepen it just a little bit, things are a little different. But what we know is that uh, some people have used that uh, to make it seem like things are perfect in Canada versus the United States. But, um, you know, we'll talk about this more later on. But in many ways, actually, uh, uh, the situation in Canada has was created by a very, very a deep uh, colonialist immigration policy where up until 1970, African people, Asian people have been restricted from coming to Canada. And only a white North American and European people really could migrate to Canada. Really, you know, and also Canada is very cold, right? So, so there's not a lot of people there per se, but we do see some similarities uh, between, uh, I mean, many similarities between experiences uh, on both sides of that colonial border. So what's some of the similarities that you've noticed uh, in the experiences of indigenous people on both sides of the border? I definitely think racism is real on both sides of the border. It uh, doesn't matter if you're in Canada or the U.S., we all experience it. Um, I don't know what the numbers are like for jails in the States. I know it's uh, roughly 30% of our jails are filled with native people in, and that doesn't make sense because uh, we're only 5% of the population here in Canada. And if you were to look at uh, other numbers, like with colored people here in Canada, there's 3% and yet the jails are still full with what 7% in our jails too. Right, right. At least, at least 7%. I think uh, when you look at, uh, the jails and the prison. I think those numbers are even just federal prison. I know when we look at uh, the the jail, uh, the municipal jail that they got over there in in Canada, in sorry, in Calgary, the numbers of Indigenous people are through the roof. Uh, youth offenders, the sort of um, uh, juvenile correctional facilities, there is uh, through the roof. Uh, for for uh, indigenous people, and without a doubt, every time you know I'm up there and I'm driving, uh, maybe out to the the mall, you Sunridge Mall is that thing is called Sunridge Mall or something like that. You see, uh, you know, indigenous youth jacked up on the back of the cars by the police, getting searched, getting harassed, and and things that like that, things that we generally see within the U.S. And people even from Canada will say, wow, you know, you all really have it hard in the U.S. They'll tell me that when I come up there and I let them know, you know, I see the same things when I come up to Canada. So, yeah. It's definitely a problem. Like I said. Yeah. Thanks for that. Zach, you were born and raised in Seattle, Washington. Washington State is a part of the Northwestern Territories carved up by British and American settler colonialism, particularly the colonizer George Vancouver. In fact, the Seattle area was officially part of the Canada Territories until the 1840s. In short, the history of the U.S. Northwest is directly intertwined with the history of settler colonialism throughout Canada. Zach, what can you tell us about the history of settler colonialism in the region? Uh, yeah, this is a great question, um, and it's it's really important to acknowledge the overlapping histories of settler colonialism because, um, as has been pointed out, uh, you know, the the Pacific Northwest region was heavily disputed, um, and it wasn't just uh, the U.S. Uh, federal government and and the the 
uh, British government, which ends up becoming the Canadian government that were beefing. Um, there were, uh, uh, I think, up to five colonial claims on the Pacific Northwest. Russia had a capital in what is now Alaska, but Russia claimed territory all the way down uh, uh, through what comes to be Washington State today based on the, the, that metropole that they had established up in what becomes Alaska. Um, from the south, uh, the Spanish uh, had a claim based on mapping the Pacific coastlines because, of course, uh, in the 1840s, before the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, when the United States government essentially um, uh, held the Mexican capital hostage and extorted the whole northern territory, uh, the, Canada, uh, excuse me, um, California was still part of Mexico, right? Um, so, so, so we have the Spanish claim coming from the south. Uh, of course, the British claim that we're talking about here um, has to do with the history of fur trapping, um, and especially kind of early... Uh, early uh, systems of capitalism as they're being kind of pushed into the region have to do with um, resource extraction, mainly furs, but other kinds of products that could only be obtained in the region, right? Beaver furs were really big. Um, and, And so these are the colonial claims that the United States is attempting to displace. Um, and so what ends up happening is the United States acknowledges that the British claim through fur trapping is historically very strong. They've been in the region for the longest of the colonial powers and kind of a direct influence. They have forts established to, to amass goods and then be able to export them onto the market. But the U.S. government says if we have settlers in place, if we have physical people in the region, it's going to be hard for the the British government to come through and push them out because there's there's forts, but there's not a, a large population of troops. So the United States, the Oregon Trail, this history of settlement is a history with a knowledge and a strategy that occupying the land was central to making the U.S. claim strong. And this is, I think, one of the kinds of differences in the settler colonial formation of Manifest Destiny that comes to be the United States. Um, and the last thing that I will say about it is that we can see the the territorial dispute with the present-day Canadian border to be one that's very central to the history of the United States because James K. Polk uh, campaigned and was elected president in 1844 under the slogan 5440 or fight, which essentially refers to the longitude lines of the present-day colonial Canadian border saying either we have Washington state as part of that territory or we are prepared to go to war. Um, And this swept him into office. Um, So those are some things that I can say uh, briefly, and I'm happy to say more. Uhuru, uhuru. So what can you tell us about the connections between settler colonialism and colonial slavery in Canada and the, the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, um, I think that there's um, a, a few connections. You know, the, the first thing that I would like to say is that slavery is something, especially in the United States, um, and, and, and especially in the narrative of Canada, right, as something that belongs properly in the South. There wasn't slavery in Washington uh, there wasn't slavery in Canada as the narrative. Um, but but first and foremost, we have to understand that the way that um, actually the territorialization of uh, Oregon Territory, which then becomes Oregon State and Washington State over time, was articulated expressly through the logics of slavery. So the first territorial legislation that was passed in Oregon Territory in 1844 is what's called the Oregon Black Exclusion Laws. And the way that the territorial government of the United States began to articulate itself was through the logics of excluding African peoples from being present um, and for punishing 
any Africans caught in the region uh, with the public spectacle of 20 lashes um, uh, administered weekly until that person departed the territory. Um, now, the, you know, you couldn't catch a Northwest flight back then. It's 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 a harrowing journey to get out uh, west. And essentially, any uh, person who was caught after having made that journey would be faced with uh, going south towards Mexico or returning along that journey. Um, so I think that it's important to acknowledge that while we can talk about the forms of labor exploitation um, and resource extraction, that are central to the colonial project there, it's very, it, which is very important. It's also too important to acknowledge that the ideological formations, the ideas that support the community formations for United States expansion into this territory, which is, of course, indigenous people's land, is articulated through the logics that are established under slavery around race um, and around property, which I know that we're going to get to um, a little bit. But what I want to say about resource extraction as has already been touched on by Darren, um, I think in a, in a much more uh, a, a deeper fashion is that the goal, the primary goal, um, of course, of the colonial project is resource extraction in these regions. They are, are they contain high mineral resources. I mean, the timber from the Pacific Northwest was used to build Chicago. It was used to rebuild San Francisco as one kind of key um resource that was exported into the larger national and international uh, circuits of capitalism and production. Um, and the roles that indigenous people played within this process, um, both serving forcibly um, as guides, um, also uh, intentionally with the understanding that, uh, that the ensuing waves of settlers that were coming, the foreknowledge of that uh, meant that there was an adjustment to um, the lifestyle practices coming. Um, and I think that we can see uh, indigenous people taking various routes to try to um, either stave off this kind of uh, colonial expansion or uh, to attempt to retain some t kind of um, autonomy while functioning within its uh, uh, limits. Yeah, Huru, yeah, thanks for that, because I've always pointed out the... A fallacy of indigenous people being called nomads, whereas uh, European people and white North American people are suggested to be sedentary. But this doesn't make sense because when white North American people and European people are moving into indigenous territory and indigenous people therefore have to move uh, or other things happen, no one says the uh, Europeans are nomads, right? I mean, it's, it's it's actually the opposite, right? You know, you got white North American Europeans moving into indigenous territory, uh, forcing indigenous people to move in multiple different ways. You know, some studies have shown that, uh, you know, the disease caused by uh, white North American and European uh, colonization can reach a territory uh or can, can reach indigenous people 100 years before they actually have physical contact with people and causing devastation and stuff like that. Uh, so, so, so it's, so thanks for that. And you also talked about this idea of the connection between private property. One thing I'll point out is that, you know, there's this store, there's a store called Hudson Bay Company in uh, Canada. And it's just a store you go to at the mall, but Hudson Bay Company was literally the company that owned the entire Western provinces of Canada for the purpose, like you talked about, of uh, fur trapping and uh, mineral 
material uh, extraction and stuff like that. And also when we think about the building of the railroads, when we think about the different uh, mineral rushes that took place, the way through which indigenous African Asian labor will be brought in and then forcefully um, uh, removed, you know, and things like that, literally expelled in many instances from Canada. We see some of those expulsions be leading to some of the South Asian migration uh, from Canada through other parts of the Western United States and things like that. So, so, so what can you tell us uh, about this? In your doctoral research, you argue, Zach, that settler colonialism is a fundamental force in the development of capitalism and private property. So uh, what more can you tell us about this? As Darren said, you know, the, the ideology uh, kind of 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 like of North American, like white culture is like chase the dollar. Right. Or like the 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 market um, is imperative um, in terms of private property. Then it's like private property is freedom. It's like your ability to own your own private property, to control it. Um, and all these ideas come from. Uh, uh, the settler colonial situation. Um, so we see in the very the earliest territorial acts that I've already mentioned, 1844, the Oregon Black Codes, the subsequent legal formations that are passed um, is what's called the Land Donation Act of 1850. And this explicitly renders property um, in terms of racial and gender definitions. What do I mean by this? I mean that you have to be uh, white, or half white and half uh, Native American, however that's established um, and understood, in order to own land in w Oregon Territory and what becomes Washington Territory. And so without getting into the nitty gritty of how this gets hashed out when Washington separates into its own territory, it's only to point out that the way that private property itself is structured is by excluding Africans from being able to own land in place. And this isn't a mistake because ideas of being able to own land and ideas of being able to own human beings, Africans as objects, developed together. So I'm saying that um, the, the colonial understanding of land as property that was absolutely central to establishing U.S. Uh, society, that's a new concept that displaced indigenous relationships to land and to family and to place. And that the way that that was done was by uh, understanding African peoples as property to be able to be owned. That kind of served as a leverage to bridge that gap uh, and define private property for us here. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Zach Williams and Darren Lathlin Torpy. So, Darren, let's go back to you. You used to live in Florida where you worked on oil rigs. You have noted that until people heard your accent, they assumed you were from the U.S. and treated you as such. Based on your experiences as a worker in the U.S., what are some similarities that you've noticed Black and Indigenous people face in the U.S. and in Canada? Uh, basically, working in the U.S. and Canada is basically the same. Um, you'll notice that most of the... Uh, the bosses, for example, like the executive, maybe even the owners, or most of those people are white, or the the laborers or the people that do the hard work are obviously colored people, right? That's one of the things I've noticed. And like I said, that's just another example of colonialism and how we're all exploited. It doesn't matter if it's U.S. or Canada. Zach, African people in North America have a similar relationship with settler colonial powers as indigenous people. The similarities exist both in experiences of oppression and in re resistance to this oppression. K 
Can you give examples of how these experiences carry a parallel story? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, one way that we can see the parallel has already been raised, um, and that's the the presence of uh, of African peoples, um, indigenous peoples, overrepresentation within jail systems. Um, as well as the vulnerability of uh, indigenous and African women to um, uh, physical violence, uh, including murders. Um, so these are metrics in which we're tracing uh, the impacts of that colonial assault against our communities um, being rendered surplus and targeted for violence. But we also see resistance to this in various ways. Um, in the course of my research, just one quick example that I would say or point out is that uh, through, as, as Darren has pointed out, the, the practice of uh, language and reclaiming culture for indigenous people is one way to challenge uh, the colonial imposition through the boarding schools to lose one's culture um, and, and, and and uh, to be rendered vulnerable in all these kinds of ways. Um, we see African peoples using culture in a similar way um, uh, in the Pacific Northwest to uh, maintain and to produce black culture through things like jazz. Um, so the local um, music union in, in Seattle and Washington was segregated up until the early 1950s. And you had all kinds of folks who participated in that that you might know, like Quincy Jones is from Seattle. Um, and was very active uh, within that um, that union formation. And so what we see is the elaboration of a very distinctive form of Pacific Northwest jazz amongst African peoples as a way to improvise and to produce sounds and ways of being and knowing that exceed the colonial logics of uh, exclusion, of segregation, of repression, and of course being targeted for death. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Zach. Because as you know, Mwambi and I are members of the African People's Socialist Party. And our position is one of unconditional solidarity with the struggle of indigenous people for the return of their land and sovereignty. In 1986, our chairman, Omali Eshetela, led a contingent of the Uhura movement to Big Mountain in the Four Corners area of the U.S. Southwest to stand in solidarity with indigenous Diné people, also known as the Navajo who were resisting forced relocation from their land. That's right, comrade. And also in St. Petersburg, Florida, where our station, Black Power 96 Radio, is located, the Uhuru Movement has joined in protest organized by the American Indian Movement at the Tropicana Field Sports Stadium, demanding an end to using sports teams that degrade Indigenous people. African Indigenous unity is a long-standing tradition in Florida, where Africans escaping slavery were accepted into the society of indigenous people. And we fought settler colonialism together, just like with the Seminole. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Zach Williams and Darren Lathlin Torpy. So Darren, uh, one last question. What are the demands being made by indigenous groups in response to the discovery of the residential school graves and how can our listeners support these demands? We need the world to wake up for everybody to see what's going on here and understand what colonialism is, understand what residential schools are, understand what the 60 scoop is, understanding what the so you know welfare system is doing to our people. It just seems like Canada has uh, the whole world you know duped that this is such a great country and there's no racism here. 
You know, this is what we need to do is everybody's got to stand up and let the world know what's really going on here. And for the record, my name is Darren Laughlin Torpy. My Cree name is Darren Laughlin, and my reserve is from northern Manitoba, which is called the Pascoa Cree Nation. And I was raised in Alberta in a, in a 60 scoop home. And that's where I was raised. But I am from Manitoba, northern Manitoba. Thank you. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. So let me ask you this other question. Since we do got a couple minutes left, uh, what are some ways you like to see uh, indigenous people uh, really organize against this? You know, um, you know. Uh, I know you're very, very uh, committed to uh, the return to the indigenous culture uh, and practice and things like that. So what are some ways in which you like to see people move from the spontaneous uprising that we see uh, taking place right now to, uh, you know, organize uh, um, uh, movement forward? You guys are doing it. You know, I'm so grateful for being here. You know, I'm 51 years old and I've never really stood up and talked about my culture. What's really going on here? You know, you look at what happened to my mom, um, to myself, to my sisters, to my grandkids. You know, this is this is exactly what we have to do to make the public aware of what's going on here. And thank you. You, you guys are doing it. Yeah, no, thank you. Zach, what would you say to Africans that want to learn more about the struggle for indigenous self-determination? Uh, this is a great question. I think it is imperative for us uh, to educate ourselves uh, on the, uh, the struggles for indigenous uh, sovereignty, land sovereignty, land repatriation in the areas where we live. Um, so there is an app uh that you can download, um, and I'm blanking on the name. I'm going to find it for y'all, but uh, it's basically Nota Land, and you can put in the land where you're at, and it'll tell you the indigenous people uh, that uh, are the traditional stewards of that place. Um, and what we can do is figure out how to uh, learn from the tr the the leader the tribal leadership that exists in place, because we have to understand that tribe that the uh, Native American tribes are still here. They still have uh, relationships with their land that need to be honored and respected and that our place within that is to figure out how we relate to that because we have a we have a claim on the other side of that which is how our bodies were used to commodify and be, and and transform the land and also ideologically how blackness anti-africanness is the foundation for how as i've stated property and other things of Americanness evolve. So if we can re work relationally with each other uh, to challenge the system of colonialism this is, uh, I think, the way to, uh, forward towards freedom for both of our communities. You're listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Zach Williams and Darren Laughlin Torpy. So we say down with the This has been the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power Radio at 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the baddest nonprofit on the planet, whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, 
healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's World Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. Thank you for listening. Colonial virus, mass incarceration, that's colonial virus.